Hello, my friends, and welcome back for this week's episode of the Practical Parsha podcast. This is Rabbi Shlomo Kohn. I hope you are well. I apologize for missing last week's episode. And, you know, I'm with you because sometimes I feel that it's harder to miss an episode, to miss a week of producing a podcast than to keep doing it every single week. You know, once you get in the groove and you go, so if you miss a week, it's harder to get back into it. But sometimes things come up and you have to miss a week. But I'm back at it. We're here again for another great episode. And in fact, this week, this Parsha, Parsha's Yisro, will be the first time that I'll be recording on Parsha's Yisro. Last year, I believe, I guess I missed last year, Parsha's Yisro. So now this will be the maiden episode for Parsha's Yisro. God willing, there should be many more. And as always, before we begin, if you have any questions, comments, would like to reach out just to say hello, to introduce yourself, please feel free to send me an email at rabbishlomokon, K-O-H-N, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Yisro. And the Parsha begins with the story of Yisro. Now, Yisro is the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, who, after hearing about Kriyas Yamsov, the crossing of the, the sea, the Jews' miraculous crossing of, of the sea, and the war of Mohammed Amalek, the war with Amalek, he decides to join the Jewish people. And Moshe accepts him, he goes out to greet him, and accepts him as a convert. Now, while Yisro, or Jethro, how he's referred to in English, is with the Jewish people, he makes suggestions to Moshe Rabbeinu to run things a little bit differently than that's been going on. He sees that Moshe Rabbeinu has a huge obligation to shoulder the whole entire, all the needs of the Jewish people. And he suggests a court system, a system of judges to be set up that all the cases don't necessarily have to come to Moshe Rabbeinu. Only the hardest ones to judge sort of work its way up the the food chain or the, the legal chain, the legal process, all the way up to Moshe Rabbeinu who can decide the final uh, cases, the final verdict on the cases that the lower courts, the lower judges, aren't able to figure out what the halacha is. The Parsha continues with the Jewish people's arrival at Mount Sinai. And God tells the Jewish nation that in a few days they will receive the Torah. And he instructs them with specific preparations that they should prepare themselves in order to receive the Torah from God. The Torah tells us in this week's Parsha how Hashem himself, God himself, tells the Jewish nation the first two of the Ten Commandments. He reveals himself to the entire Jewish nation. And thus, Judaism is the only religion to make a claim of mass revelation to the entire Jewish nation, that God comes directly to the Jewish people to proclaim the first two of the Ten Commandments. And the commentaries tell us that when he said the first two, it also included the rest of the Ten Commandments as well in his utterances that God commanded the Jewish nation. But the commentaries tell us how the Jewish nation was not able to handle the word of God directly. And therefore, for the third to the tenth of the Ten Commandments, they hear from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Moses. And this week's parsha, the Jews accept the Torah. 
Now, the first idea I wanted to share with you today takes us to the beginning of the Parsha. So as we know, the Parsha is called Parshas Yisro, named after the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu. And the whole beginning part of this Parsha focuses how Yisro hears about the miracle that happened to the Jewish nation by the Red Sea, how they miraculously crossed, and how they defeated the nation of Amalek in this miraculous battle, and he decides to join the Jewish nation. And it's interesting because the main event in this Parsha is not necessarily Yisro, but rather it's the giving of the Torah. You know, and we don't call this week's Parsha Parsha Sinai. We call it Parsha Yisro. So some of you might answer, oh, it's because that's from the first few psukim, it talks about Yisro. So that's why we call it Parsha Yisro. Okay, that could be a good answer. But today I want to focus on maybe a different point, the important lessons that we take out from Yisro. And maybe that's why he merited to have a Parsha named after him. The Torah tells us, Vayishma Yisro koin midyon chose Moshe as kol asher osa elokim lemoshe Yisrael amo ki hoitzi Hashem as Yisrael mimitzrayim. Yisro, the minister of Midian, the father-in-law of Moshe, heard everything that God did to Moshe and to, his, to Israel, his people, that Hashem had taken Israel out of Egypt. Now the first question that Rashi asks on the first verse of this parsha is when it says, Vayishma Yisro, Yisro heard. Ma shmua shama uva. What did Yisro hear that caused him to come, to become Jewish. Kriyas Yamsuf Umochemes Amalek. And Rashi brings down two different reasons, which is the splitting of the sea and the battle of Amalek, where Amalek, the Jews were coming out of Egypt, and the nation of Amalek, they ambush the Jewish nation, and the Jewish people fight back and defeat the Amalekim. So Rashi gives us two reasons. Now, the first point I want to bring out here is that the commentaries tell us that the whole world heard about Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, and the Melchamas Amalek, the battle where the Jewish people, these nation of, they were just slaves, and they came back and they fought this powerful nation, they defeated them. Everyone heard about it. You know, the, the Midrashim tell us that when the sea split, all the water in the world split. It means if you were drinking a glass of water in some far-off land, it split. Everything split. And everyone heard about it. But yet at the same time, we only see that Yisro came forward to change his life. And I think it's a very powerful lesson here that many times people experience things, even if it could be the most miraculous things, but yet they don't necessarily take it to apply it to their life. You know, on last year's episode of Parshas B'Shalach, which I put out last week for rebroadcast, I talk about this idea of internalizing inspiration. And I feel like it's, it's you know, it's, this is a similar point. Whenever we have a certain experience, we're supposed to take from that experience going forward with it. And that's what Yisro did. He heard, he saw, and he acted. 
And that's what Rashi is inferring when it says, Ma Shmua Shama Uva. What was the the hearing? What was the news that he heard that caused him to come? He actually did something. He heard something and he did something. And maybe that's one idea about why Yisro merited to have this Parsha named after him. Because it's easy to just hear about great things and to experience these things, but it's about doing something about it and putting things into action. Now, I wanted to focus on a little bit of a separate point here, which I saw brought down from Abitorsky. He says that Rashi, these two reasonings that Rashi gives, are really listed as separate reasons in the Talmud. That when the Talmud asks about the reason why Yisro became Jewish, he became part of the Jewish nation, is because of one reason, and then it gives another reason, two different reasons. Usually in the Talmud, you have one opinion, you have a second opinion, and they're both separate of each other. You don't need both of them. But Rashi, the way Rashi brings it down, he brings down both opinions. He says it as if it's both, that they're together, that because of both of these reasons, because of the splitting of the sea, and because of the the miraculous victory over the Amaleks, so that's why Yisro became Jewish. Why does Rashi feel it necessary for him to bring down both reasons together? Say that there's two opinions. Rashi does that sometimes. There's two different opinions as to why he became part of the Jewish nation. But he's giving it as one. Why does Rashi feel it necessary to do that? What is he trying to teach us? What is the message that he's trying to give over to us over here. And I saw a very novel answer to this question brought down from Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. He says that we have a concept that's brought down in the Talmud that a person is not supposed to rely on miracles. And in fact, there's actually stories in the Talmud where certain Tanoim, Amoroim, these are the rabbis in the Gemara, they got upset at another one of their colleagues because they put them in a situation where they had to rely on a miracle and you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to put yourself in a situation where you have to rely on miracles. And actually, this has ramifications halakhically because a person is not allowed to put themselves in a dangerous situation because you're not, you have to watch over your life. You can't put yourself in a situation where the only way out is a miracle. You're not supposed to do that. So, on one hand, we're not supposed to rely on miracles. But on the other hand, we know that when the Jews came to the Yamsuf, to the Red Sea, God told the Jewish nation, you are going to just stay silent. I'm going to take care of everything. Right? I'm going to do battle for you. That's what Hashem says to the Jewish nation. I'm paraphrasing. And, and he splits the sea for the Jewish nation. He performs a miraculous um, miracle for the Jewish people. And they cross. And in fact, if you think about it, you know, the Jewish nation as a whole, our history, our survival, our existence is in essence a miracle. And really, we're just an outgrowth of many miracles. You think of all the stories in Tanakh. You think about the story of Purim. You think about there's so many stories how God performs miracles for the Jewish people. Now, sometimes these miracles are within the realms of nature. 
You don't see them openly. It's not like the splitting of the sea. But it's not, it's can't be denied that the Jewish people's existence today is wholly because of God helping us and getting us to the point where we are today. We would not we would not have existed if not for Hashem watching out for us and even performing miracles for us. Um, maybe in a more concealed way, but he definitely is performing for us miracles. And even current events. You know, you hear these stories in soldiers coming out of Gaza of the different miracles that have happened to them. And he's watching over his people. He's watching over us. Now, at the same time, Yisro, who heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, he heard about that open miracle. That wasn't enough for him to push him over the edge, so to say, to cause him to become part of the Jewish nation. Because we know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, God doesn't necessarily perform miracles on demand. They're, I guess, you know, not something that we can rely on like we talked about. It's not something we should rely on. God decides when he wants to perform a miracle for us, and we're not the ones who decide when yes or when not. But when he saw that the Jewish people did battle with the nation of Amalek, and they were victorious, that convinced him that the Jewish nation had durability, that they were the right choice. Because this balance of putting in your own effort, but yet at the same time relying on Hashem, relying on God, was something which Yisrael realized had this balance, had this appeal, which caused him to become part of the Jewish nation. Because on one hand, miracles by itself we can't rely on. It's not something we're supposed to rely on. But at the same time, we need to do our effort. We need to do our shtadlos, to do our due diligence, and to try our best. Success is not in our hands, but what we need to do is put in the best effort we can. And when Yisro saw that there is a, a people, a nation, that are trying to strike this balance, on one side, putting in your best effort, but yet at the same time, realizing that your efforts are not what give you your success, he said, that's the nation I want to join. That's the eternal people. And really the lesson for us is to strike this proper balance, which really could seem antithetical to each other in a way, right? We have a responsibility to try our hardest, to do our best. But at the same time, we have to realize that the things that we're trying, for example, to earn ourselves a livelihood, that's not what's causing us to have success. It's Hashem, it's God that's giving us that success. So at the same time that we're trying, we're putting our best effort forward and we're supposed to do that, we have to still realize that everything is in the hands of Hashem. That's what we need to do, strike that balance in our lives the recognition that everything comes from Hashem, but at the same time, to do our ishtadlis, to do our due diligence, to put our best effort forward, but remembering that the effort that we're putting in, even though we need to be giving the effort and we need to give 110%, is not with what's ultimately causing the money to flow or the success to happen. 
It's from Hashem. That's why it says two reasons in Rashi. Because Rashi is telling us that it was both of these um, factors together which pushed Yisro to become part of the Jewish nation. The second idea I want to share with you today takes us to the third of the Ten Commandments. So sometimes actually a good trivia for somebody is tell someone to list the Ten Commandments. You might stump more people than you think. But either way, the third of the Ten Commandments is You shall not make yourself a carved image nor any likeness of that which is in the heavens or on the earth below or in the water beneath the earth. So the third commandment is to not make an idol. Now, this sometimes is very hard for us to understand, this idea of idol worship. You know, in times gone by, in the times of the Talmud, in the times of the temple, there was this urge for people to serve idols. And even it began even earlier times, even in the Torahs, by Avram Avinu, by Abraham, we see that people wanted to serve these inanimate objects, these statues. And, it, you know, to us, it doesn't make any sense. Like, serve an idol? Why would, why would you want to serve an idol? It's an inanimate object, doesn't move. It's just, it seems meaningless. And obviously, on, on one hand, we can understand this because the Talmud tells us that at a certain point, I believe it was after the destruction of the Second Temple, the sages prayed that the Yetzahara, the evil inclination to serve idols, should be taken away from us. And the Talmud recounts over there exactly what happened, the story. But either way, after that point in time, the this urge, this desire to serve inanimate objects as they had done before, didn't take itself in the same form from then on. And that's why we don't have this desire to go run and bow down to a statue. But if you think about it a little bit more, you know, still, how could intelligent people bow down to idols? Like, you know, we, we still have this commandment. This commandment applies to us even nowadays, even if this desire doesn't apply theoretically, right? Or maybe we don't have this desire. So, question is, is that why would a person ever think to do this? Why would someone think that this statue, which you shaped, is now a god? Right? It doesn't, it's hard for our minds to wrap ourselves around this. So one answer is like I gave you, there was this urge, this desire, but I want to focus on a little bit differently today, this, a different route that we can take to sort of answer this question. The Talmud re- relates for us in Tractate Sanhedrin. It says as follows. It says, Amr Rav Yehuda, Amr Rav. Rav Yehuda said, in the name of Rav. The Jews knew that there was no substance to idolatry. Meaning, we see in Tanakh, and you know, in, in times of, uh, later times, and maybe in the times of the, the Gemara as well, that Jewish people unfortunately served idols. So the, the Gemara is telling us here that the Jews, when they started serving idols, they knew that there was nothing to it. It says, and they engaged in idolatry only. What was the reason? 
in order to permit for their for themselves overt immorality, meaning to permit for themselves to do immoral things. And Rashi explains over here on this. He says, that these original Jewish people who became idol worshippers, they had this strong desire for immoral relationships. Amru, they said to themselves, Nifruk call oil Torah, I'll throw off the, the yoke of, of Torah, me'alenu, fa'al yechichu al arayis, and, and, I, and I won't be, um, and therefore if I throw off the, the yoke of Torah, I won't be rebuked for what I'm doing. No one will rebuke me if I'll make my own religion, so to say. But originally, they didn't have a desire to, to serve these idols. They only did it in, as a way for them to have an excuse to do what they wanted to do. Sorry, they wanted to find a way to, to be involved with these immoral relationships. And therefore, they reasoned that if they would just cast off the, the yoke of Torah and turn to idolatry, nobody would reprimand them for their, for their bad behavior. And uh, this idea really fits very well into the Pasuk. Because the Pasuk says, You shall not make yourself a carved image. If you think about this for a minute, right, the literal translation is that you shouldn't make for yourself an idol. But is there a deeper message here as well? And if you think for a minute that based on this Gemara, based on this tractate in the, in the Talmud and Sanhedrin, that the these people, they just wanted to have a, a excuse to do what they wanted to do. It means that they didn't want to serve God, but rather they wanted to serve themselves. That the word of God, they felt, is too restrictive for me. I can't do what I feel. I can't do what I like. So therefore, I have to find a new God where I could do whatever I like and no one's going to hold me back. So what comes out here is that loy pesel. Don't make yourself a carved image. Don't make yourself a, an idol. Meaning, that doesn't necessarily have to be that idol worship has to do with a statue, but rather has to do with fulfilling your lust, your desire. That a person has to be careful. If a person has this urge to fulfill his desires, self-gratification, to do what he wants, that is idol worship. That's what comes out. That's the connection we're seeing, that the people who started originally wanted to fulfill their desires. And that's how worshiping idols began. So it comes out that it doesn't necessarily have to do with graven images, but it has to do with ourselves. That when we give in to ourselves, when we just want to do what we want to do because that's what our animal instinct, instinct wants, in a way we're becoming like in a graven image, like an idol. And the point is, is that we see in society today that all the things that used to be forbidden have become permitted, and not just permitted, they became they have become cause celebre. That this is the 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 existence, the reason why people, you know, their whole existence is based upon these causes. It's not necessarily that people believe in these things, it's that sometimes that deep down, if you get to the bottom of it, people want to do what they want to do, and they don't want to feel guilty for it. So therefore, if I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want to feel bad about it, I'll make it into a religion. And when I say religion, I don't mean religion in the classic sense. 
It could be in the political sense. It could be in the social sense. That certain things you think about today, it's not that it used to be forbidden and now it's permitted. Now it's becoming permitted and things you should do, right? Because no one wants anyone to feel bad about anything they could do. Every, everything's about self-gratification and feeling good. And what the Torah is telling us here is that, no, that is idol worship. When our whole lives are focused on just making ourselves feel good and not thinking about Hashem, not thinking about God, so that it comes out that we're worshiping an idol. Because idol worship is all this idea of self-gratification, thinking that I can't restrict myself. I want to. I don't want to give him to. I don't want to restrict myself. I don't want to hold myself back for God. I want to do everything I want to do, and I need to find a reason to do that so I don't feel bad about it. And this is just, uh, I guess, to make it more practical for all of us, is that when it comes to our desires, or we have to realize why we're doing something or not doing something, to not just give in because we want to give in. That's what we want. We have to think about things to to use our mind. And it doesn't have to be everything about religion and theological, it could be just be in general how we act. And obviously this conversation goes to religion as well. But it's something we need to keep in our mind when we see things going on in the world, when we make decisions in ourselves, what we view as correct or incorrect, it goes by the Torah, it goes by what God said. That's why you need morality, that's why you need the word of Hashem, the word of God, because if not, it just comes out that things change, societies change, morality changes, and people fit their desires of what they want to do into what is correct or not correct. So with that, I'm going to finish for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, comments, or like to reach out, please feel free to send me an email at rabbishlomokon, K-O-H-N, at gmail.com. Have a great day.